welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In March of 2019, the Center on Addiction prepared a report titled Uncovering Coverage Gaps. It was a review and comparison of addiction benefits in the ACA plans for all 50 states. This report was an eye-opener, both for what was covered in the plans, and but mostly what was omitted. Here to talk about that and more is Lindsay Volo. She is the Director of Health Law and Policy at the Center on Addiction. As we begin, Lindsay discusses why less than 30% of the population that struggle with addiction actually get into treatment. So there are a number of reasons why people don't get treatment. Um, Some of the barriers include stigma. Um, So people, there's a lot of stigma around um, addiction and its treatment. And so um, people may be ashamed to come forward um, to seek help. They may be concerned that seeking help will have a negative effect on their employment um, or that they'll have negative opinions um, from loved ones or uh, their community. Um, the second barrier is access. There are a shortage of treatment um, providers in many areas. So the specialty treatment system lacks capacity. Um, there aren't enough facilities for, for people. There's also a shortage of behavioral health providers who provide um, psychosocial therapies. There are also shortages of methadone clinics and healthcare providers who are authorized to prescribe buprenorphine, two of the, the medications for opioid use disorder. Um, also segregation of addiction treatment from the mainstream healthcare system means that care is often unavailable in the healthcare system. So people aren't able to go to their doctor, uh, for referral, like they do for other diseases and doctors often don't know how to, um, screen treat or where, or know where to refer people. Um, and then another major barrier is not having healthcare coverage or not being able to afford the cost of treatment. And this is the barrier where I focus on a lot of my work, um, and how to improve insurance coverage in order to make care more affordable. In your report, Uncovering Coverage Gaps, where you uh, do a review and comparison of the addiction benefits in the ACA plans of all the states, um, you notice that there are some gaps in the cost and coverage. Can you explain? Sure. So there are a number of gaps um, in in access, in quality, in coverage, and affordability for care. Um, as I mentioned, there's just an overall um, lack of a uh, shortage of treatment providers, so there's lack of access to care. Um, people are un- often unable to find treatment, or they might encounter a long wait list for treatment. Um, people may often receive substandard care because addiction treatment isn't subject to the same um, strict requirements for training, licensing, and credentialing, um, or requirements to use evidence-based standards, uh, or the same type of rigorous oversight that's provided in the mainstream healthcare system. Um, looking at the coverage gaps, plans may not cover substance use disorder treatment or may not cover all critical substance use disorder benefits. And that's what we really look at in our report is what benefits are plans, plans offering and do they offer the benefits um, that uh, comprise comprehensive care for people with substance use disorders. So I, I think your last couple of sentences are really telling. Your analysis of this 
uh, says that for a lot of reasons, this is still very unaffordable for many families, irrespective of where they stand on insurance coverage. That's right. So even just having insurance coverage and even having coverage that may cover these critical benefits, there are still a number of hurdles that families have to ju- and individuals have to jump to get treatment. Can you give us a quick synopsis of what those are that are supposed to be covered as essential benefits? Yeah. So what we're looking at is um, coverage of, of the full continuum of services. And so that's all levels of care from inpatient treatment, um, residential um, intermediate services, which are are less intensive than than um, inpatient, but more intensive than outpatient treatment. So we're looking for partial ho- coverage for po- partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient treatment, um, and then outpatient care. And then um, we also look for coverage for um, which and those services often include therapy and and different kinds of services that will be included in those levels of care. But the way that the benefits are often defined in plan documents is by the the level of care. Um, and then we also look for coverage of medications, um, FDA-approved medications to treat um, various substance use disorders. And so um, looking whether or not plans cover um, medications that have been approved for alcohol use, as well as the FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder. Um, and so specifically, we are looking for explicit coverage of um, the FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder, which include naltrexone, buprenorphine, and methadone. And methadone is where we really find a lot of the issues um, with exclusions for methadone treatment. Next, Lindsay introduces the 10 essential benefits of the ACA. So the Affordable Care Act requires um, certain plans. These are individual and small group plans, plans that um, people often buy on the state or federal exchange plans, commonly referred to as Obamacare plans, to cover 10 categories of benefits that are defined as the essential health benefits. And one of those categories is mental health and substance use disorder treatment. And so the Affordable Care Act really marked the first time that um, the federal government required plans to cover services for substance use disorder treatment. And the, the Affordable Care Act also required that mental health and substance use disorder treatment be covered at parity with medical or surgical benefits. And so it extended another federal law known as the Parity Act to these individual and small group market plans. Next, we learn why the Parity Act is so important. The Parity Act is actually a 10-year-old law, and it says that insurance plans cannot place more restrictions on mental health or substance use disorder benefits than they place on similar medical benefits or surgical benefits. Um, And so it basically says you can't um, make mental health or substance use disorder care uh, more expensive than similar medical surgical care, like co-pays have to be um, the same. Uh, You have to use the same criteria when you determine whether or not prior authorization is required for um, mental health or substance use disorder. You have to have the same requirements for mental health and substance use disorder um, providers to join plan networks as medical surgical providers, and you have to have comparable reimbursement rates. So parity really covers, um, really, parity really means equality and fairness and um, to prohibit the use of discriminatory practices by insurance companies against people with mental health and substance use disorder that have been pretty pervasive historically. We talked a little bit about the ACA and um, where, how it addresses or doesn't methadone treatment. Can you, can you note on that? Yeah. So, it, so it's important to note that um, we found several um, states that offered plans in 2017 with methadone exclusions. And importantly, the federal government um, recently clarified that covering methadone for pain, um, in which every plan that we reviewed um, 
did cover it for pain, methadone appeared on the plan's formulary, but excluding coverage for, for opioid use disorder may be illegal. It may violate um, both the Affordable Care Act's um, non-discrimination clause as well as um, the Parity Act if the exclusion isn't supported by medical necessity. And so that's that's a really important clarification and hopefully will reduce some of this um, discriminatory coverage of methadone for opioid use disorder. So what used to happen is that plans would often um, impose discriminatory practices on mental health and substance use disorder treatment. So they would say, you can get unlimited medical care, but you can only get $500 worth of mental health or substance use disorder treatment, for example, for the year. Or you can only get substance use disorder treatment three times in your life. Um, or you can go to your primary care doctor an unlimited number of times, but see your behavioral health therapist 10 times a year, pay higher copays, so on and so forth. And so the Parity Act really prohibited plans from doing that. Um, it also extends to any type of, of, of limitation on, on care. So things like prior authorization requirements, medical necessity determinations, um, plans, networks, reimbursement rates. So it really extends to all aspects of how a plan manages the way the benefits are delivered and administered. Um, but in practice, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And so... You point that out in your report, yes, in fact. Yes, yes. And it's very difficult to determine whether or not a plan is parity compliant um, because it requires information that is often not publicly available, like a plan's internal processes. We evaluate these plans for parity compliance because, in our analysis, because uh, the ACA requires these plans to um, provide mental health and substance use disorder treatment at parity. But we're only able to do a very cursory review, again, because we can't get at the information that that's really necessary, claims data, um, and other uh, non-publicly inform available information. The plan documents are kind of vague in a lot of cases, They right? are vague. They're not transparent. We found that over 90% of the states um, offered plans that we reviewed that we couldn't perform a full review because they didn't contain information about whether or not they complied with the various ACA requirements. Over 90%. Or 90%. So let's see, you looked at two plans, I think, per state one, when two. they had two good ones. Yeah, at least one, but then, yeah, one or two. And and so still 90% of those didn't have enough data. Yeah, and I've we've looked at a lot of plan documents since I started doing this work, and it's pretty common. Um that the, the plan documents are just not transparent. They're vague. We'll often find that there's one paragraph, maybe maybe not even a paragraph, maybe a few sentences that say, oh, we cover substance use disorder and mental health treatment, period. And then pages and pages dedicated to other benefits like skilled nursing facilities or home health care. Um, so the, the information is very, very limited. And that makes it very difficult, you know, not only to determine whether or not these plans are compliant with various requirements, so whether you're doing research or whether regulators, regulators often are relying on these types of documents to determine whether or not a plan's compliant. Um, they don't contain necessary information. But it's really difficult for consumers, right? These, as I mentioned, these are the plans that are sold on the individual and small group markets. These are plans that people are going, they're looking at, they're deciding which plan to buy. And so you can't be an informed consumer if it's not the plan documents don't list what services are covered. Incredibly. 50% of the states are not in compliance. Yeah, so the plans are required not only to cover substance use disorder services, but there are other requirements under the Affordable Care Act um, that require plans to cover substance use disorder benefits. So, for example, under the preventative services requirement, plans have to cover screening, 
for um, alcohol and drug use for adults and adolescents um, and screening and cessation for smoking. It's unbelievable to think that Narcan is not covered on some states' plans. With the prescription drug EHB requirement, we've, we see plans that aren't covering that where naloxone doesn't appear on their formulary. They're required to cover at least one opioid reversal medication. When we had done this study in 2016, we looked at the EHB benchmark plans. And um, the EHB benchmark plans are actually the plans that um, define the minimum level of services that have to be covered under the substance use disorder um, EHB category. So the ACA doesn't set out the specific services that have to be covered for mental health and substance use disorder treatment. It allows the states to select a benchmark plan. And that plan becomes the minimum level of, of services. So we had reviewed all of the state's benchmark plans for 2017. So each state does that? Is each that, state that does that. Saying? Yeah, they okay. identify a benchmark. Um, and so we had originally done this study of the benchmark plans. And then we repeated it for plans that were actually sold in 2017 to determine whether or not how they compare to the benchmark. Are they, are they at least at a minimum offering these services? And then did coverage improve given that the opioid epidemic um, you know, has continued and there's been calls to increase treatment access and availability. So um, when we had done this study of the benchmark plans, we actually found 20 states didn't have an opioid reversal medication on their formulary. We saw an improvement, but we still saw, saw four states where at least one plan didn't have an opioid reversal medication, such as naloxone, on their formulary. It's very surprising given all of the efforts to increase the availability of naloxone to prevent opioid overdoses. What substance use disorder benefits are covered in these plans? We um, look for the full range of, of critical, you know, critical services, which we define in the report, which are all the levels of care and the FDA-approved medications. The ACA doesn't require plans to cover all the FDA-approved medications. It requires them to cover at least one medication in each of these classes, one of them being opioid dependence treatments. And the opioid dependence treatment class is defined as only as um, three medications, buprenorphine, buprenorphine plus naloxone, and naltrexone. It doesn't include methadone. And it doesn't include methadone because it borrows from these Medicare guidelines. And the Medicare guidelines don't include methadone because it can't be dispensed when it's used for opioid use disorder. It's not dispensed under a prescription of formula at a pharmacy. It is usually provided at an, an OTP, uh, a methadone clinic, as they're commonly known. And so when we look for whether or not the plans cover methadone in these documents, we look for methadone coverage in the plan document as a medical benefit, not on the formula as a pharmacy benefit. So we'll almost, we always, in, all, in these plans that we reviewed, at, in every plan, we found methadone on the formulary, but that means it's covered for treatment of pain. We don't always find it. In fact, we rarely find it covered in the plan benefit as a medical benefit where it's covered for opioid use disorder treatment. A lot of people, you know, do have to pay out of pocket if their insurance doesn't cover methadone treatment. Next, we talk about claims denials. What we hear a lot is that patients may be denied a certain service because it was determined not to be medically necessary. Um, and so um, the the Parity Act actually requires plans to use the same type of, you know, criterion guidelines to determine medical necessity as as are used for, for medical surgical benefits um, and to apply them in, this, in a similar manner. But when we, other studies uh, and evaluations have looked and seen that medical necessity Denials are higher for mental health and substance use disorder treatment. Um, there was actually just a decision out of California, WIT versus United Behavioral Healthcare, in which 
the judge found um, that that United Behavioral Healthcare was deviating from generally accepted medical standards um, in making medical necessity determinations. So that's a really important um, a really important case because it shows that plans can't just use their own criteria to determine medical necessity. They have to use some some generally accepted standards. Next, Lindsay talks a little bit about prior authorization and how important it is to do away with it in most cases. Prior authorization is a common, uh, you know, commonly used by health plans to, um, you know, ensure that care is appropriate. But it just it 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 imposes some unique barriers on patients with substance use disorder because of the nature of the disease and the effect it has on the brain. After all the analysis, the model state that did the best was Rhode Island. Rhode Island was um, the only state that we reviewed where both of the plans that we reviewed um, provided comprehensive coverage for for um, substance use disorder. So they explicitly covered all the benefits, including methadone. They covered um, all the FDA approved medications for opioid use disorder, um, and they didn't impose uh, limitations on care that were particularly harmful, like arbitrary limits. Um, so we didn't, when we had reviewed the 2017 EHB benchmark plans, we didn't find any plan that provided comprehensive coverage for care. Um, so we were pleased to see that Rhode Island um, provided comprehensive coverage in both plans that we reviewed, and then there were three other states, Oregon, California, and Minnesota, that offered at least one plan that provided that comprehensive coverage. We've got a compliance problem here. Yes. What do lawmakers need to do to fix that? Yeah. So we need to increase enforcement and oversight of these requirements. Whose job is that? So it's largely up to regulators whose plan, who are, have jurisdiction over these plans. These specific plans, these ACA plans, um, states actually, for the most part, have jurisdiction over them. So the AG's office? Um, it'd actually be the insurance department. Um, the AG can have enforcement authority as well, particularly over the Parity Act. Um, so it, it varies by state, but in New York, the AG in New York has had great success in enforcing um, parity, the Parity Act. Um, and some of those decisions that have, have actually reached beyond New York. They entered into a few agreements with some national carriers, um, again, to eliminate the use of prior authorization for FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder. And those were then those uh, agreements were then applied nationally, not just to. Uh, individuals in New York. So yeah, the AG can certainly have an enforcement role um, and can enforce other, you know, state requirements to cover substance use disorder benefits that maybe um, are, 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 there's non-compliance with them. I think the other major issue, and we see this with, particularly with the Parity Act, is that it's the enforcement framework really relies on consumers to come forward and file a complaint that their parity rights have been violated or sort of raise their voice that they've been denied care. And that's just an undue burden on consumers. I, right? I don't know this stuff. First of, I mean, it's tough enough to navigate that. Right. right. And so we really need to shift our enforcement approach from one that sort of relies on identifying problems to ones that make sure there are no problems up front mm. um, and that they're all compliant with the law. And so I think um, in many cases, the, the, the enforcement strategy that's being used just isn't isn't strong enough to uh, sort of identify these issues. Um, so, so while the enforcement authority largely lies with regulators, I think lawmakers also have a role to play in making sure regulators have enough resources to be able to carry out their their enforcement priorities. Um, and there should certainly be an enforcement priority, um, particularly in states that are concerned about increasing access to treatment. 
uh, for people who have substance use disorder. Next, we talk about the takeaways. So I think for a state, the most important takeaway is to understand how some of these policies are working in practice. On paper, the Affordable Care Act and the Parity Act both provide very strong protections for individuals with mental health and substance use disorders, um, and they prohibit discriminatory insurance practices. But it's really important to make sure those policies are working as intended. And I think this report helps to create some transparency around some of the ongoing issues with those laws. So we're really providing to the states, here's some specific issues in your states, right? So as you mentioned, on a state-by-state basis, each state can look to see what are the particular barriers that are happening in our state. And how, so I think we've helped to identify the barriers, and it's really up to the states to determine policies that can help overcome those barriers. They can use our tool. um, They can look to other states that have taken a lead on addressing some of these barriers um, to see how they can reduce those barriers for individuals in their state. So you're so knowledgeable on the insurance industry and on laws, particularly it's clear for ACA. What advice would you give to families on how they can... uh, you know, how how best to get their arms around this system and navigate this. Yeah. So I, you know, really want families to understand that that there are these laws out there that are meant to prohibit these um, discriminatory practices. You know, we hear so often from families um, who come to us that they all, many of them face insurance barriers. And so and, and are unaware that these laws exist. And so one is to just really raise awareness um, about them. And two is to get them to to raise their voice um, and to come forward when they've been denied care. Um, I think there are many reasons why it's, it's difficult to come forward for another project that we had done um, on parity. Some of my colleagues had done a survey of consumers and many of them identified having um, an insurance coverage issue. Um, but not many filed a complaint. Um, so, you know. With whom? With the insurance company or with a regulator so who oversees the insurance a industry. A state regulator. A state regulator or a federal regulator, depending on what type of insurance coverage you have. Again, this is one of the complexities of, of insurance. Um, and what was interesting was that people reported they were much more likely, they were more likely to file a complaint or an appeal or den- of a denial when it was a medical service but not as likely when it was a mental health or substance use disorder service. And I think that that really speaks to the stigma around this issue and that um, people maybe think they don't have rights when it comes to treatment for these illnesses or they're afraid to speak up. Um, And so raising your voice can help overcome that stigma too. Um, Also, as we said, we, you know, really are working to change the enforcement framework to put more of the burden on insurance companies and regulators to to identify compliance issues, um, but in this current framework, often a complaint's needed for a regulator to investigate uh, insurance practice. Because you're so knowledgeable on this, it just yeah. seems you or you know an, another group, um, somebody before you make that complaint and everything. Hey, what about this? And what about navigating this? Yeah, a, a group that could say, well, did you try this and this? Is, does that exist? So I don't there, know. there are different groups out there who have mm-hmm. different resources. Um, there are websites that track parity-related complaints so people can sort of enter their information and mm-hmm. sort of demonstrate some of the parity issues. And I, I'd be happy to share these resources with you um, so you can make them available to your listeners. Yeah. And then there are also um, 
there are state-specific resources. Um, and so one of the issues, if you, you always have a right to file an internal appeal with your insurance company um, when you're denied care. And I would encourage everyone to always do that. Mm. Um, don't take no for an answer, especially not the first time and maybe not the second time. Um, so I would always encourage, encourage you to do that. And then secondly, especially related to parity, um, you can file a complaint with a regulator. The specific regulator is going to depend on what type of insurance you have. And so if you have state-regulated insurance, like these individual or small group plans, um, you can go to your state insurance department and they probably have a hotline or uh, something on their website for you to file a complaint. If you have a self-insured plan, meaning you're a, you have a large employer plan, these are usually companies that are across many different states where the majority of people who have employer-sponsored insurance are covered, you actually have to go to the Department of Labor um, because the federal government has oversight over those plans. If you have Medicaid, you need to go to your state Medicaid office. So again, there's a there's a real patchwork here um, that makes this this complicated. There are states who have recognized that this is an issue and created what's called an ombudsman, which is really like a one stop shop. Um, so that that you can call that number and they can help you navigate that. Um, Texas and New York both have ombudsman programs um, to help individuals with healthcare complaints, but also specifically behavioral health complaints. Um, so I would also search around in your state to see if there may be um, some some type of group that can help, um, maybe a state group or, or otherwise that can help um, can can help you figure it out. But it is a bit of a it it is a very fragmented process. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lindsay, this has really been informative. What uh, would you like to leave our listeners with? What do you, what would you like them to take away from this podcast? So I'd like them to know that addiction is a treatable disease, right? And like any other disease, it requires individuals to go through the healthcare system. And in this country, access to that healthcare system involves insurance. So insurance is really a key part of our country's response to the addiction crisis that we're in. And I think it's not something that people often think about, either individuals or lawmakers, you know, there seems to be, especially among lawmakers, like a real urgency to increase access to treatment, but then we're not utilizing these tools that prevent discriminatory insurance practices or are meant to increase treatment access. And so understanding that comprehensive insurance coverage, while it won't solve the whole problem, is a key piece to solving this issue. And that if we can get people to understand that they have rights, often when it, they often have rights when it comes to insurance coverage, and speak up when they think those voice, those rights are being violated, that can really help us improve insurance coverage, save lives, and resolve this crisis that we're in. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking today with Lindsay Volo, who is the Director of Health Law and Policy at the Center on Addiction. Lindsay shared the results from the Center's two Uncovering Coverage Gaps reports which detailed the findings of their review of addiction benefits in ACA plans in all 50 states. The benchmark and ACA plans are reviewed for ACA violations, parity violations, and substance use disorder benefit adequacy. So what have we learned? For parity violations, in 2017, 10 states offered ACA plans that contain parity violations. In the latest report, just nine states still had plans with parity violations. In the latest report, all 50 states had benchmark plans that were deemed inadequate. 
for substance use disorder benefits. And if you live in Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Hawaii, Illinois, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, New York, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, or Wisconsin, no coverage exists in your state's benchmark plan for the opioid reversal drug naloxone. We'll let you be the judge if there's room for improvement here. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.